Well, we get to continue our journey through Genesis, the foundation, the beginning. If you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to pick up in there, and we are going to talk about the fall, the fall of man. This is, this is a chapter that honestly is, is not much fun to talk about because it's, it's where things went south, right? This is where our struggle began. And quite honestly, it's, it's a difficult passage to teach on and study and to accept. And, and honestly, in some ways, it's a little aggravating. You want to get angry and pummel some, somebody named Adam. Not that one. Actually, you know, we'll leave that one alone. But uh, not, not the... <laughs> Not the Rodman one. So, it's if it, so if any of you have any problems with any of this, the end of service, he's right back there. Just take it out on him. <laughs> but no, seriously, it could be one of those things where you read it and you go, "Man, what if he had just made? They had just made the right choice. What if they just stuck with it, resisted temptation? Where would we be today, man? I'd I'd be okay with that story. That would be kind of a nice story." But you know what? God had a different plan, and as we'll study and see tonight, it was for a very specific purpose. And in His infinite wisdom, which is far greater than ours, can we agree on that? Uh, He saw fit to allow these things to happen, and ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, we can get a glimpse of why. And as tough as it is, as painful as it is, uh, there is a purpose in it, and God uses it for His glory and for our good. And we're going to see some of that. We're going to see how in Genesis chapter 3, really, and some people call Genesis chapter 3 kind of the seed plot to the whole plan of redemption. It's, it's one of the most foundational books in the whole Bible because doctrinally speaking, just about every uh, key point of doctrine is founded in Genesis chapter 3. The fall of man, the necessity of redemption, and all these really critical elements to uh, what we call salvation, the gospel message. Uh, so is, this is an important chapter to study and to, to understand. There's also some things, I'm going to try and avoid too many rabbit trails, uh, because there are some things in here that leave a lot to speculation, and there's no shortage of speculation out there. I think we all have heard a wide variety. There's entire denominations and cults that have been founded on, on crazy interpretations of this chapter, or running with man's speculation on who Satan is and how certain things might have happened and it's just, um, you know, it's, it's honestly, it's not worth doing. We can, there's, there's things we know. There's things that God's Word spells out very clearly and other things that we're not told. And for us to spend any exorbitant amount of time on the things we're not told is probably not the best use of our time. So we're going to focus on what we are told. We can talk about a little bit of the speculation, but I'm going to try and keep it on track here. So Genesis chapter 3. Before we get into God's Word, why don't you join me one more time in just a word of prayer as we ask God's Spirit to teach us from His Word. Heavenly Father, thank You that Your Word is faithful and true, that You are faithful and true. Thank You, Lord, that You, you have a purpose and plan for us. And Lord, in this suffering of this life, in the struggle, in the toil, Lord, in these things that none of us really are especially thankful for, we struggle with the whole reality of our existence in some ways. And we see the origin of that reality here in Genesis chapter 3. And Lord, I pray that in it we would see a thread of your mercy, your compassion, your love, 
and ultimately your plan of redemption for us, to have hope in seeing these truths. And so we ask that your spirit would teach us tonight as we go through it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so why don't we go ahead and read through chapter 3 just to get a good overview, and then we'll go, go back through and we'll kind of unpack it verse by verse and see if we can see some of the key points that God is bringing across in his word. It says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together that they made, and made themselves coverings. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And then God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go. You shall eat the dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and in your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then Adam said, and then to Adam he said, because... You have heeded the voice of your wife, and you have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, and both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread, until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, for all, and also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden till, to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword in which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Wow. So, that explains it. That's why we're, we're in this mess we're in. Well, that's it for tonight. <laughs> Just kidding. No, it's um, quite a story. And this is one of those stories that garners a lot of skepticism from those who would doubt the literal interpretation of the book of Genesis. They go, oh, come on, a talking snake? Yeah, really? 
I can see little kids in Sunday school believing that, but let's grow up a little here. And then there's, you know, and there's a lot of mockery that is drawn from this passage that there would be a talking snake literally and that this kind of scenario would play out in this, in this fashion. But we're reading history. We're reading history here. We're not reading a parable. We're not reading a figurative story that's meant to illustrate merely some spiritual truth. This is meant to be read as history. And this is what happened. And so it starts off introducing us to Satan himself. This is the first mention of him. Suddenly we're introduced to this character, this serpent, more crafty than any beast of the field which God had made. And the word crafty is also interpreted cunning or shrewd, uh, wise. Uh, so not necessarily, a matter of fact, in the original interpretation of that word, it wasn't necessarily a negative one. Obviously in this case, uh, the enemy, Satan, is using it for evil. And so we see a bit about who Satan is through, if we skip ahead to various parts of Scripture, we can get a glimpse. So, uh, you know, I thought we should take a second and take a little side route here and talk about well, who is this guy, Satan, this serpent? Where did he come from? When did he fall? What, what can we know about him? You know, because some is a bit mysterious and not spelled out, and other things are given to us a little more plainly. So I want to give you some scriptures. If you're taking notes and you want to jot down some references, I'm going to read through them quickly uh, to give you a little background on this character. Um, but first of all, okay, so who is he? Prior to this point in Genesis, we've been told nothing about him. Well, Ezekiel 28 gives us some information. Isaiah 14 also gives us some information. And also, obviously, throughout scripture, he shows up from time to time, and it's never good. So, Ezekiel 28, I'm going to read from there, starting in verse 12. It says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Now, this passage is speaking, actually, of Satan himself, and, and it's in this description, is talking about uh, what Satan used to be and how he fell. It says in verse 13, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius and the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx and the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, the emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. And so first of all, we see that in the very beginning in creation, he was, he was created, obviously. He was a part of the creation of God. This is an important point we need to note, and there's many other scriptures we don't have time to go through, but... Satan is not equal with God. Satan is a created being. We see a clear distinction made between uh, Jesus and Satan. Some of, one of the common fallacies in doctrine in other cults and churches uh, that uh, have gone astray is that somehow they've, they've come up with the idea that Satan is Jesus' brother. Uh, that's one of the common uh, lies out there, that they're equal, and essentially they're sort of rivals in, in, in vying for power or for uh, God to kind of go with their plan over the other. There's sort of these like rival brother type of situation. But it's clear in Scripture, Satan is a created being, and Jesus is not. Jesus as the Son of God we know throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. We've talked about this already, so I'm not going to get too much into it, but he's a member of the Trinity. Uh, John 1, he, in, the, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and was God. Nothing even close to that uh, is used in reference to Satan. Satan is a created being. 
Now, make no mistake, we're told here in verse 13 in Ezekiel 28, he was pretty magnificent. He was gorgeous. He, was, he had glory. It talks about, in describing his covering, it lists just about every precious jewel and metal uh, that was prized at the time. So he was obviously very beautiful and very glorious. He was among the top and chiefest of angels, the cherubim that God created. And it, it, it hints as to his duty and his title. It talks about how the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you in the day you were created. And it goes on to talk a little more about him. And it's, uh, it seems to be clear that he was uh, in charge of worship in some manner, uh, worship of God Most High. And so he was created to be basically a worship leader. And it tells you a little bit about the importance of worship uh, by God's design in that he would, one of his chiefest and most radiant and glorious of angels and creations would be in charge of worship. And this very angel fell in his pride. It says, verse 14, you were anointed a cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity, iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, you cast, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you O covering cherub from the midst of the fiery stones, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings so that they might gaze at you. So we're given a picture of how Satan was cast out of heaven. He was cast out of the presence of God because of his pride. He was, he, it was his pride that caused him to fall. He thought, you know, I don't want to be in service to God. I want to be God. I want to be like God. I want to be worshipped. Here we have the worship leader of heaven. Now it corrupted because he wanted to be worshipped. And we know that just by the very nature of the fact that Satan made this kind of a choice, he, he made a bad choice just like Adam made a bad choice. So we have an indication here that obviously at some point angels had a choice, a free will, just like we do. And during that time, Satan chose to rebel. Satan uh, chose to get prideful and chose to want worship for himself. And we know that he also drug a good portion of the other angels with him when he, when he rebelled and when he fell. Now at this point, they're sealed in their choice, as we one day will be. Isaiah 14.9 also gives us some other insight it talks about the future of Satan, where he will be headed, and a little bit about him. It says, Isaiah 14, verse 9, Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. So <laughs> his future is not so bright, is it? All of the chief ones of the earth, it has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nation. And they all shall speak and say to you, Have you also become weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, and the worms cover you. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, 
Is this the one who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? So it's talking about how great Satan's fall will be. This, this, this one who deceived the nations, this one who has been a plague of all mankind from the very beginning, as we're reading in chapter 3 of Genesis. One day he will be brought as low as low gets. One day he will receive his just reward, and we know what his future is. So we know a little bit about Satan from Scripture. If we look throughout it, we can see that he was created. We can see that he was once a glorious uh, worship leader in heaven. He was a leader among angels. He is one of the most glorious of God's creation in that manner. And he fell because of pride. He fell because he wanted to be worshipped. And he took many angels with him. And we're not going to get into some of those other passages. But um, we're given a bit of an insight as to who he was. Now, we look at this and we wonder, okay, well, did he take on the form of a literal serpent? So he talks about how the serpent came and spoke with Eve and... It appears to be a literal creature that came to Eve and spoke. It appears to be that it was a literal serpent. Now, exactly what that serpent looked like, I mean, we're, we tend to default to that picture in our mind that we got from Sunday school of this snake tempting Eve with the apple and, uh, you know, that whole scenario. But obviously, we don't know exactly what he looked like, what the creature looked like. And, we, and there's nowhere in Scripture that says it was an apple or an orange or banana or anything else uh, specific like that. So we don't know exactly what it was. The main point of this is, it was the one command that God gave at the time. Don't eat of this fruit. Whatever it was, it really doesn't matter. Whether it was that, we like to put apple because it gives us something to picture. But we don't know what it was, and we don't know exactly what this serpent looked like, this form he took. But we do know that it wouldn't be the only place in Scripture where an animal spoke. We look at Balaam's donkey, right? Balaam's donkey had to straighten him out at one point in time. Uh, so we see that from time to time, animals are called upon to knock some sense into human beings, or sometimes in this case, uh, used by the enemy for his purposes. And that certainly is, seems to be the case here. And so he said to the woman, has God said? As we look at this passage, I want you to think about Satan's methodology, his plan of attack towards us, because it hasn't really changed much. He tends to do the same thing, and it tends to work, sadly enough. But if we are wise, if we are aware of his tactics, as any good Christian warrior should be, uh, we, will, we will be wary, and we'll be aware, and we'll fall less. We'll be, we'll be uh, uh, onto his game, and therefore stand more firmly when temptation comes. We'll recognize it for what it is. But this is how Satan starts off. He says, to the woman, has God said... So what's he doing? He's creating doubt. Satan starts by creating and planting doubt in our minds, in our hearts. Did God really say this? Does that really matter? Does this really mean what you think it means? Um, are you sure that's really true? I mean, come on. Really? That's where it starts. He starts with that seed of doubt. And then in verse 4, he says to the woman, you shall surely not die. So it goes from planting doubt to an outright lie. He goes into a complete denial of what God said. You're not going to die. Right in, the, right in her face is saying, God did not say this or didn't mean this, or he's, God's a liar. He's accusing God of being, uh, of being a liar, essentially. No, God's just trying to pull one over on you. And, and he gives his explanation. 
For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. So what's he doing here? He is appealing to her fleshly lusts. He's appealing to her ability to, to fall in the same manner he did. He's appealing to the same thing that brought him down. The, the, the uh, lust for power, for wisdom, was his very demise. And so Eve's mistake is she was drawn in by Satan's questioning, and she made these mistakes. First of all, she, when she was drawn in by his questioning, you notice we have to read very carefully what she says. It's interesting. When Satan starts with that doubt and asks her, what did God say? Does she actually quote what God said verbatim? No. Actually, what's interesting is if we compare the account from chapter 1 of what God said to Adam, and Adam passed on to Eve, and obviously they had communion with God. She knew what he said exactly. But we just see, have an important spiritual uh, lesson to learn here in her words. It says that she said, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may, we may eat. Well, in Genesis 1, we'll notice that she took away from the words of God and in Genesis 1, it says, from the fruit of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. And it's interesting how she sort of minimized that freedom that they had uh, under God's ordinance, under his commands. They, the freedom and, and the, uh, all, of the, all that God had blessed them with, she sort of minimized that in her statement. She eliminated the words, every tree, and freely eat. Uh, it's interesting but then she went on to add to God's words when talking about the restriction, the one command that they had to follow. You notice he says, you shall not eat of it or touch it. Well, in the account of what God said in, in chapter 1, did he say anything about touching it? No, he didn't. So she add, both added to and took from his words. And we're warned pretty severely in Scripture of what the consequences of that are, aren't we? Going to Revelation it talks about how anyone who adds to these words, it'll be, the plagues will be added to them, and if they take away, uh, the promises will be lost. And there's a major consequence for anyone who uh, messes with God's word. And we see Eve fell victim to Satan's plan, and she started messing with what God's words actually were. You know, another interesting thing to note is where does it say the tree was? right in the middle of the garden. You ever wonder about that? You know, I, I know sometimes when I read that, I go, man, why didn't God put it like on Mount Everest, like 60 miles away or something like that? Made it like really hard to get to. Wouldn't that be kind of logical? I mean, if he really didn't want them to eat of this thing, why'd he put it like right in the middle of the garden? They have to walk by it like every day. You know, or it's just like right there. It, and, and that always kind of I don't, I don't want to say bother me, but it, it kind of bothered me in a sense. It's like, it almost seemed like a trap. Like, hey, you're setting him up here. Why would he put it right in the middle? Uh, but again, you think about what God's plan was for redemption and what the whole point of having a choice was and the meaning behind that. We have to realize there's a purpose in that. You know, but it's just, you know, it, to me, it'd be like, you know, having a, a bowl of, of candy out on a coffee table and telling my two-year-old not to, not to eat one and then walking out of the room. I can guarantee you what will happen in that scenario. Set up a hidden camera, we'll catch it, catch it on video, and he'll stand there for a minute and kind of wait. And then when the coast is clear, he's going straight for that bowl. 
just about every time. And then when they get older, as you train them and as you teach them, they learn character. They learn to make good decisions, Lord willing, and you're purposeful in your training. But they do. They grow in that. And then they get to the point where you can trust them to make wise decisions. You can trust them to obey when you're not watching over their shoulder. But early on, especially, you know, uh, you, you don't put something right in front of a young child and tell them not to touch it. That's a guarantee. They'll touch it. You tell them, don't look over there. What do they do? That's the first thing they will do, guaranteed. And so it's interesting that God puts this tree right in the middle of the garden. But we have to, again, look at the essence of what is free will. You know, and if God put it in a place that was completely unreachable, where you had to climb this massive cliff and, and scale this precipice and, and cross the Sahara Desert 100 miles to get to this forbidden tree, well, it wouldn't be much of a temptation, would it? Well, it's like, why bother? But it was there in the garden. They had access to the entire garden, this one tree, but it was right there in the middle. And why? Because there had to be a legitimate choice. There had to be a legitimate choice, meaning it was there and available. They had accountability to God. I mean, I'm sure they fellowshiped with God on a daily basis, saw him regularly. But they had to have a legitimate choice, which means there had to be, side by side, the presence of the right choice and the wrong choice. Because in order for the relationship with God to truly mean anything, the love that we would have and the personal relationship would have, it had to be a sincere choice. And so as much as it seems uh, almost, almost like a setup, you know, that had to be that way, that we would have a meaningful relationship with our Creator that we would, we would have the opportunity to truly choose him over something that was tempting right in front of us. Uh, God said it that way for a purpose, that our, our relationship would have actually some true meaning to it. You know, what about Eve? Here she is talking to this serpent, and she doesn't seem at all surprised. You know, you'd think if some crazy serpent comes up and starts this conversation with her, wouldn't she be taken aback a little? I, I would think so especially if it was the first time it had happened. So you know, you got to think that either it's possible that animals did have some ability to talk before, I kind of doubt that, or that there had been an interaction before. Satan had been around, you know, this wasn't the first conversation that he had had with them. I have a feeling that Satan spent some time building rapport with, with Adam and Eve. Say, their chances are they had some good time in the garden before the fall happened. And she wasn't shocked by this encounter. She wasn't shocked by this conversation. And so it leads me to believe that Satan spent some time building a little relationship with them. That, oh, yeah, they had these passing. He had already fallen. He'd been cast down. Chances are they encountered each other before. And it, again, illustrates a spiritual truth to us. Many times it's not this sudden out-of-the-blue thing that causes us to fall. It's a slow process. It's like that song by Casting Crowns. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. And, you know, Satan had been working on them. He had been kind of probably taking them on walks right by the tree, pointing out how beautiful it was. You know, but this was not the first encounter. And Eve was not surprised by this conversation. She jumped right in to the conversation. And he caught her off guard and was able to get her to a place where she was willing to entertain doubt with God Question, question his motives, and then ultimately give in to her sin, give in to her fleshly lust and temptation. 
So Satan clearly had access to an interaction with Adam and Eve. Verse 4 tells us a bit about Satan, and we know that Jesus reiterates this in the New Testament. He is the father of what? Father of lies. The very first lie in all of history was told by none other than Satan himself, which makes sense. He is the father of lies. He starts off by causing her to doubt and then immediately goes straight into lying blatantly to her face, speaking complete lie to her and trying to convince her to just believe it enough to give in to her fleshly lust. Picking up back in verse 6 in Genesis chapter 3, it says, Then the women saw the tree, that it was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. The tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So here we see the very nature of temptation. Satan and our flesh is really where it comes down to. We have our enemy that is out to seek to kill us and to destroy us, to bring us down. And we have our own fleshly lust that we war with on a regular basis. And 1 John 2.15 spells this out for us, and we see this illustrated perfectly here. It says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things of the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So what do we see here? It says that she, when she looked at the food, she saw that it was good for food, lust of the flesh, the ability to fulfill just that fleshly desire. Oh, that looks, that looks good. That looks like it would taste great. It would satisfy me. It would give me what I need, my fleshly needs. And then she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And that it was desirable to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. She followed right, fell right into Satan's scheme, right into what's spelled out for us in 1 John, and were warned of it then. Thousands of years later, Satan was using the same tactics, and, and John was warning the church that he was still at it, full throttle. The tactics he used on Eve in the garden, he was still using on the church in that day. He was appealing to their fleshly desires, their fleshly needs even. This isn't even just about those extra luxuries. Eating is a pretty basic need, isn't it? Feeding our bodies and, and giving ourselves food and drink, that's a pretty basic need. That's pretty, we can argue, that's justifiable. We can, come on, you know, how, is that, how could that possibly be wrong? So we tend to justify disobedience in our mind in that way, the lust of the flesh trying to just simply view the world and the decisions we make from the basis of what does my flesh need and giving that preeminence over what does my spirit need. What's in my best interest here and now versus what's in my best interest for eternity. It's a bit of a difference there in how we make decisions, wouldn't you agree? Now Jesus gave us the best example of this in denying the lust of the flesh. What did he do in preparation for ministry? He went out and fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, and he was tempted by the devil. He was right there. And what was the first temptation? Feed his flesh. Just make bread. What's the big deal? But he, refused. he passed the test. And he gave us, it's so amazing how in Jesus, the second Adam, we see the conquering of the very uh, process that Eve and Adam fell to in the very beginning. 
Jesus came back full circle and conquered his every while, his every test. And Satan took him through three tests, and Jesus conquered through, through using Scripture and, stand, and, and, and through walking in the Spirit. Uh, he gave us that perfect example of what it means to follow God and obey his Father. Jesus came back and, and fulfilled this failing by conquering in all three ways. Isn't that awesome? We're given that perfect, perfect picture of victory in Christ himself. And in the very thing that caused us to inherit this sinful nature and this struggle and this pain, Jesus came to set us free from it. So what's an interesting contrast is brought up, just a little side note, um, Chuck Missler uh, points out how it's interesting how um, you know, there's a, a, a little article written about temptation and about um, walking in the spirit versus in the flesh. And it seems consistent through scripture, just a, an interesting thing to note, that Satan seems to consistently appeal to us via our eyes. And yet throughout scripture we see that God tends to appeal to us through our ears. We see that in Revelation, we see in each letter to the churches, he says, to him who has an ear, let him hear. And faith comes by hearing. And yet, over and over, we see how many people throughout history and throughout the scriptures fell because of their eyes. How their eyes got them in trouble. One of the most obvious being David and Bathsheba. But throughout scripture, we see that the eyes can be a source of failing for us. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be, we need to be wise as followers of Christ. So what are we to do with temptation? What does the Bible say we're to do with temptation? Well, first of all, we see in Matthew, in Matthew 6 that in the Lord's Prayer, part of that is a prayer to not be led into temptation, to avoid it. Uh, part of that prayer, that model that we're supposed to follow is to seek to avoid temptation and ask God to help us avoid it, not even encounter it. Matthew 26 in Jesus challenging the disciples, he says, watch and pray, lest you enter into, what? Temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will, allow you, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You know, and even in this scenario from the very beginning, from the first temptation and the first fall, they had plenty of other options besides that one tree, didn't they? They had a way of escape. And what's so sad and tragic about this whole story is at any point they could have called on God for help and he had been right there by their side. They had the most intimate fellowship with God that all humankind has never experienced and they failed to access that resource. They failed to call upon it. But we're told throughout the scriptures that temptation is not something we're supposed to play with. It's not something we're supposed to flirt with. We're not told to wrestle with temptation. We're supposed to flee it. We're, we're, not suppo we're supposed to have a healthy respect for our own weakness. You know, we tend to think too highly of ourselves. Like it says in 1 Corinthians 10 here, um, you know, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest you fall. That should be our attitude with temptation. To never think we've got it figured out or overcome or beaten. That's how we have victory, is to realize how easily we fall. Picking up in Genesis 3, let's move on. It says in verse 7, And then, after falling in this way, after 
making this tragic choice. Then their eyes were both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know, it's tragic, but sin always creates separation from God. Always. And from the very first time when they sinned, when they disobeyed God's command, they experienced that separation. And it's illustrated by this so graphically. You know, they had always had been naked, but for the first time they felt naked. You know, and this shame that they felt in their sin opened the door to shame itself. Shame became a part, very part of their nature and their existence, and therefore they couldn't stand the thought of being in God's presence. The very person who could save them, the very person they should be, they should have been hunting God down. Instead, they ran from him and hid from him for the first time ever. They ran and hid. That is the result of sin. Yes, they indeed did know good and evil, but they knew evil by experience, not just about it. They experienced it, and this is the result. Shame, fear, ultimately, as we're told, death. That's how they came to know good and evil. In verse 9, it says, Then the Lord God called to them and said, Where are you? Now, there's certain things that God cannot do. Wait a second. I thought God could do everything. Well, there's certain things he can't do, believe it or not. One of those things we're told in Scripture, I believe it's eight times throughout Scripture, we're told that he cannot lie. God cannot lie. It's completely against his nature. All-knowing, all-powerful God does not lie, cannot lie, because he is truth. He is the source of truth. He also cannot learn. Well, why? Well, because he already knows everything. So he cannot learn anything. So why does he ask, where are you? Where are you? Well, you know, it's interesting, this word where, when you look at the original language, when he's talking about, when he says, where are you, uh, the original Hebrew word there is actually, it has this connotation of asking more of, what is your state of being? Like, how are you? Not just where are you, but are you okay? Kind of a thing is what God's doing. And it's really showing God's compassion in his heart to seek them out and give them a chance to come and confess. Give them a chance to go, here I am, I blew it. Instead, they're hiding. So God sought them out. You know, God always does the seeking, doesn't he? You know, when we see how God called Abraham, did Abraham call, come to God and say, hey, can you pick me? No, God sought Abraham out and called him and told him to go and to obey. Jacob, when he was fleeing to Bethel, God caught him and stopped him and called him. Moses, did Moses volunteer himself? No, <laughs> far from it, quite resistant. God sought him out, God chased him down, and God gave him the privilege of being used in a mighty, mighty way. You know, the shepherd always seeks the sheep. He always is faithful to pull us back and to go after us. And yes, we can resist, but to our own demise. And so he says, I heard the sound of you. This is Adam, obviously, verse 10. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? 
And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave from the, me from the tree and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You know, some things never change. The proverbial passing the buck. Nobody does that today, right? Just look at politics. That's, that, that is the art of politics. Is it's never your fault. It's always someone else's fault. It's classic. But from, from the very beginning, that was the instant reaction. Don't accept personal responsibility. Always pass the buck. You know, it's, it's funny. You see it. It's classic. People do it all the time. You see it in children quite often. You ask them a very pointed question. Did you do this? Well, actually, let me tell you about someone else who made me do it. Or, you know, but before I did that, let me tell you what someone else did to me. It's always a diversion. It's like, no, no, just answer the question. It's so hard to get a straight answer. God had the same struggle with Adam and Eve. They passed the responsibility, and Eve followed, Adam started with Adam. He set the bad example. Eve followed suit. Sadly enough, neither of them admitted their fault right off the bat. Neither of them stepped up and said, I sinned. Neither of them confessed and repented. Instead, God was left to go back through and pronounce the consequences of their sin upon them. Now, I want to take a little side route here for a second again and talk about marriage. We talked about marriage last week. We talked about how God's design for marriage is clearly spelled out in Genesis. Remember that? And God gave us a very clear design. And we see here some very sad shortcomings in that marriage relationship. You know, first of all, in the marriage relationship, when it's done right, I believe really gives us a glimpse of Eden, a glimpse of perfection, because in the marriage relationship is the one place where that shame of that nakedness isn't felt. The shame of their fall, when they went and hid and felt like they had to cover themselves, that's the one that's the one environment in which that is taken away. Isn't that a beautiful picture? An amazing thing where we get a taste of what Eden was like prior to the fall in the marriage relationship. That's the one place where that consequence is sort of, in a way, removed, where there's that blessing and that freedom. You know, and there's, the marriage design is meant to be foundational on a social level. It's, it's the building block. It's the, it's the molecule of society. On the physical level, it's, it's, the, it's the very um, foundation of reproduction and in the, in the building of, of population in the planet. But on the spiritual level, it goes much, much deeper. And we talked about that last week, so I'm not going to go all that deeply in it. But we see, first of all, Adam failed as a husband here. We see that Adam was, to, was, was designated the head of the family, the head of the, of the marriage. He was... Uh, uh, called to lead his wife by passing on the command and leading in it, and he failed. And it says in this passage, it's interesting, when it says that Eve gave of the fruit to Adam who was with her, who was with her. It's as if he was standing right there watching this conversation go on, watching her be deceived, because we're told in Scripture very clearly in, in, in Timothy 2.12, the woman was deceived. Adam made a conscious choice to disobey. The woman was deceived. And so here's Adam supposedly leading his wife or supposed to be leading his wife in following and obeying God. And he watches her getting totally uh, done over by Satan, falls victim to his deception, and then he just kind of buys into it. 
a very sad picture of the breakdown of a marriage when things aren't followed by God's design. So Adam stood there and watched while she's conversing. He did not stand up. He did not intervene. But then Eve, in her deception, brings her husband into sin with her, and Adam fails to stand firm. First Timothy, I'm going to read that passage. It says, it talks about not permitting a woman in that day and time in that culture to have authority over a man in the context of church, and, and we're not going to get into the doctrinal uh, and cultural issues of that and defining that, but one of the reasons he talks about giving there in verse 13 is, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And again, illustrating the headship and the order in marriage in particular, as well as in society here. And it says in verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But Adam obviously made a conscious choice. You know, an interesting, there's an interesting take on this that I want to also uh, encourage you to consider. An interesting take, because we tend to beat Adam up pretty bad, and rightfully so. I mean, I... I've had those moments where I'd like to kick him in the teeth myself. But another thought, as, as I was studying this and reading on it and, and gaining some different perspective on it, Adam made a conscious choice. You know, you've got to remember, Adam knew. God told him what the consequence of disobedience was, didn't he? In the day you eat of it, you shall surely what? Adam knew that. He knew what he was choosing when he ate that fruit which tells me something else. I don't think it was just because he was a pushover. Because even being a pushover, I don't think you would choose that. Honestly, I think he loved his wife, and he didn't want to be separated from her. I think that could be a valid point of view to consider, that he would consciously choose to walk with her in her fatal decision. That he would consciously choose to leave leave the eternal bliss that he had going for him to, to enter into that fallen state with his wife, to enter into a certain death with his wife. It's an interesting perspective um, to consider, and I think there's some validity to it. Because first of all, you know, Adam was the first type of Christ and meant to be a picture of what was to come. In the negative sense, granted, but Adam was meant to be that picture and it kind of challenges us to think, do, do we love our wives that much? Would we make that kind of a sacrificial choice? Uh, foolish in a sense, but at the same time somewhat heroic. And in the same time, in a certain sense, falling right in line with God's plan. Because if he hadn't done that, the seed necessary for redemption wouldn't have continued on. And him, by making that sacrificial choice now allowed God's plan of redemption to continue through that line, ultimately through which Jesus would come. I know it's just an interesting way to view it, but, you know, that is how much Christ loves his bride. That's how much he loved his church, what marriage is meant to symbolize to begin with, and his love was that of absolute sacrifice, wasn't it? He gave up his life for his bride. And we see a bit of a picture of that, a very fallen one, granted. But we see a picture of that here in Adam and in Eve and what, they, what happened in this tragic scenario. We are all called sons of Adam because we were not created directly by God as Adam was. And through Adam, we're told that we receive this sin nature. And in Romans 5, it spells out this for us pretty well. You know... 
in some ways, I have to admit, I'm tempted to think of how unfair it seems that Adam got to choose between having a, a sinless nature and having a sinful one. Do you and I get that choice? No, we don't. We're born with this wretched thing. We're stuck with it. We don't get to have that same... We're not presented with that same option, are we? We inherited his mistake. And in some ways, that feels pretty unfair. Doesn't it? Am I the only one that feels that way? I, I'm kind of bummed by that sometimes. It seems like, man, if I was given a chance, I wonder if I could have made the right choice. I wonder if how long I would last. I don't know. I'd like to think I'd, I'd make a better decision. But it seems sometimes unfair. But again, we must remember that Adam was a type of Christ who was to come. And just as much as we inherit sin and shame because of Adam's decision, because of what Christ did, not because of what we did, we get to inherit life and righteousness. And so in like manner, Adam being a picture of him who was to come, yes, we got a bit of a bum deal by the first Adam. But by the second Adam, we get just as scandalous of a, of a thing, quite, quite more so. By God's grace, Jesus paid the price for us, paid our debt, and set us free by nothing we did. How much better of a scenario is that? We don't now that now our mistakes, our choosing is even completely taken off the table because if we just rest in the choice Christ made, we're set free. We are sealed for redemption. We are saved. So in the end, we actually got the better end of the deal. In the end, we, came, we come out far ahead because of the second Adam that we benefit from. Romans 5, if you want to jot in your notes as a reference, I'll read through part of it. Romans 5, 12 through 17 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not yet sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more by the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace by the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So when we're tempted to think we got the raw deal, we're tempted to think that it's just not fair, you know what? It isn't fair at all that Christ died for us. It isn't fair at all that he took our place and our punishment. But we don't complain about that. We're pretty thankful. And in the end, we are truly blessed for what Christ did and for what God had planned as the grand designer of our redemption. Amen? Let's read on. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you're cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so the curse, we see this serpent Cursed to eat dust. I mean, ultimately, this is really an illustration of humility and being brought low, uh, being utterly degraded. 
is what this is illustrating. But we say, we see it says, "You will bruise; he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel." In other words, Christ is going to die, but it's merely a flesh wound, as they say. He is going to die on the cross, but he is going to conquer, and he's going to crush his head and ultimately win the war in man's redemption. And that obviously is speaking of Jesus. But notice it's interesting here because it talks about the seed of the woman. Well, in Scripture we see that seed always refers to the man, not the woman. So why would it say the seed of the woman? Well, we're seeing here the first hint at the prophecy of a virgin birth. The first hint that Christ indeed would come, son of God and son of man. And so it says the seed of the woman. But also notice again we have a second seed mentioned here, the seed of the serpent. And we see as history plays out, we see this dramatic struggle uh, between Satan and his, his, and his, his, his minions, his, his, uh, his plans and purposes, uh, and God's plans and purposes, and between what God has in store for us and what Satan would do to disrupt that plan. Revelation 12 illustrates this battle most graphically between Satan and his forces and between the woman and her seed, which is Christ. We see that Pharaoh tried to wipe out the seed of Israel. We see that Haman tried to do the same in reading the book of Esther. We see throughout history, over and over, Satan tried to use different people, different circumstances to wipe out God's plan, God's people. And every time it's thwarted. Every time God conquers. Even Hitler being one of the most recent examples of, of Satan trying to use someone to thwart God's plans for his people. And of course, it would not prevail. Another, another interesting thing to note as we move on, um, we see that a serpent throughout Scripture tends to refer to sin, but in Numbers 21, we see that, uh, there, that Moses was commanded to put a brass serpent up on a pole to heal people by having them look at it because the serpent was going around this, if you remember, they rebelled against God. God sent these poisonous serpents into the camp. People were dying. And this, this brass serpent was set up to heal people by looking at it. It's interesting because it's a symbol of sin, but we're told in the New Testament, Jesus explains that he is, that he is, that that was a prophecy. That was about him, that he became sin, who knew no sin. He became sin for us, that he would ultimately put to death the results and consequences of sin. But we see this interesting picture even from the very beginning here in Genesis, all prophetic, all pointing to Jesus, that second Adam who would fulfill these things. Let's pick up in verse 16 as we wrap up. It says, To the woman he said, I'll greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And this obviously illustrates um, the, the sort of the fallen state, I think, of, of, of man and woman, of that struggle for uh, dominance, of that, uh, uh, that fallen state of what the marriage relationship really kind of is as opposed to what it could be in, in that perfect communion. We talked, remember, about how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have this perfect communion, this perfect complementary relationship, this oneness. And that oneness is, is meant to be exemplified as well in, in a, us being created in his image and somewhat as well in the marriage relationship. And now we see that he's saying 
that there's, there's going to be some consequences, there's some strife in this relationship because of this sin. And it says in 17, then in, to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you. you notice that God goes through and he holds each person accountable for their actions. He doesn't give them any kind of breaks because of what someone else's influence was. Each person is accountable for their actions and for what they did and said. It says, because of you listened, because you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you. And so he calls him on. He says, listen, I commanded you, Adam. I commanded you. Not only did you fail, he failed to help his wife in obedience. He says, you shall not, I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you'll eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. So the ground was cursed. Before, it used to thrive, and there was never this issue of weeds or this issue of having to toil to make it bring forth. It was something that was very natural. It was something that happened uh, by design, and now it was a struggle. Now it was going to take great effort to bring forth something productive from the ground. And it would bring forth thorns and thistles, it says, which obviously are of no value, they're certainly not edible. That's not something you want. And the idea is it's bringing about the very opposite of the antithesis of what you would want to come from the ground. But again, we see the fulfilling and the conquering of this very curse in Jesus himself when we see the crown of thorns was placed on his head as he paid the price for this sin, as he conquered this curse. He quite literally wore that crown of thorns. He wore the curse on himself, and he conquered it for our sake. And now, verse 20, to the man, now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So first of all, <clears throat> we see the, the first sacrifice here, don't we? Where did the skins come from? Obviously, God had to perform a sacrifice. So we see the institution of the necessity of innocent blood to be spilled for the remission of sin or the covering of sin. We see that right here from the beginning, that that was necessary. Before the Le We see really an institution of the Levitical law. The Levitical covenant uh, was started right here. And this was temporary. Obviously, we know that. This was meant to point to the ultimate Lamb of God who would redeem the world. But he made that first sacrifice, the first death happened right then and there when an innocent animal had to be slaughtered to clothe them and to cover their sin. He also taught them that their fig leaves were not good enough. You know, um, it's a pretty good illustration of how, how much our, our own efforts to cover our sin or make up for our sin are worth. They're, they don't do it, do they? Uh, just as much as Adam and Eve's effort to cover themselves was insufficient, their own effort to make up for their sin or cover their shame was sadly inefficient and, and ineffective, he was illustrating to them that no matter what their effort, it wasn't going to be sufficient. You know, and as a church, our works will never, will never be sufficient to earn us God's grace or his favor. Uh, it is only by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God that we can be 
redeemed, that we can be forgiven. And he made that clear. And our works are like those fig leaves that just did not, did not do the job, uh, that, that did not cover the sin in like manner. Um, we're, we're taught that our reliance must be on Christ and his work, not on any efforts of our own. In verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And he also drove the man out, and on the east of the garden he stationed cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. You know, God in his mercy did not want man to live in an eternal state of sin, an eternal fallen state of suffering and pain. And so in his mercy, he prevented them from being able to eat of that tree of life and forced them to have to look ahead to what Jesus would bring in his redemption. You know, it's also an interesting note that he sent a cherubim. We know in Scripture that cherubim were among the highest order of angels. Why, why not just a run-of-the-mill angel? It specifies a cherubim. And, you know, it's, some commentators speculate that it wasn't just about keeping the man and the woman out. It was about any attempt of Satan himself to get access or to get the, get the, get the man and the woman access to that tree. And remember, Satan's on, on the prowl the entire time. Satan, every step of the way, is trying to thwart God's plan. And so God places one of his highest angels there to guard that tree and to make sure that uh, his plans are seen through. And so all in this, wrapping up chapter 3, we see, we see some pretty foundational doctrine in here, don't we? We see how we got to be here. Why sin exists, why pain exists in this world, why suffering exists. Because we have a choice, and we still do have a choice to follow God or not, don't we? We still have a choice whether to walk in the Spirit or to walk in the lust of the flesh. We still have an, a choice whether to enjoy the consequences of, of a life lived for God or, or suffer in the consequences of a life lived for our flesh and following what Satan would have us follow and the temptations that he would present us with on a daily basis. He's constantly dangling that fruit in front of our eyes, isn't he? He's constantly tempting us with the things of this world or the things of our flesh that would lure us away, and he's constantly planting that doubt or blatantly lying to our face that God isn't what, who he says he is or that won't, won't fulfill his promises, that his truth isn't what it seems to be. And we have a choice to make. Will we obey? And, and will we enjoy the benefits of that obedience? It says his commands are for our what? For our good. And that Jesus came to give us life in that abundantly. That means when we follow his plan, it's always best. And so we walk in the same struggle, and we have the same day-by-day choices to make. And we have a hope far greater, knowing what Jesus did ultimately is what we rely on. We don't rely on us making a good decision, do we? We don't have to worry about getting kicked out of heaven because we blew it today. We rely on the completed work, the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. His perfect gift and sacrifice is what sets us free. It's nice to be on this side of the picture to see how the plan played out and knowing what we have to look forward to. Amen? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your word. And though this is a tragic story, of failure, it still rings of redemption and victory because of what you've done and because of what you had planned from the beginning. You knew that the, the, bad, the wrong choice would be made. You knew the shortcomings of man. You knew uh, all along how this would play out, and yet you were willing uh, 
to see it through up to the point of even sacrificing your own son on our behalf. And so, Lord, we praise you and thank you. Lord, we're humbly grateful for what you did in this uh, amazing and mysterious plan of redemption. Um, Lord, I pray that we would walk in the spirit, that we would resist the enemy, that he would flee from us, that we would flee temptation. Lord, that you would equip us to walk in your truth and to enjoy your fellowship rather than experience the consequences of sin and separation. Lord, that, but that we would walk closely with you each of our days here on this earth until that one day where we get to enjoy your presence for eternity. I pray your blessing on each person here as they go out from this place. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.